0: Good morning. morning. Now, y'all did a lot better at that this morning than the first service did. Y'all responded a whole lot better than they, I had to give them a second try. So, so y'all are to be commended. You can go home and you can brag about that. Especially if you know somebody was in the first service, you can let them know you didn't have to have a second shot. That's good. I'm glad that y'all are all here this morning. Thank you for coming and worshiping with us here at Ivy Creek Baptist Church. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please take them out. Turn with me once again to the book of Genesis and to chapter 49. Genesis chapter 49. If you've been with us on this journey through Genesis, where we've been basically studying the second half of this book since the beginning of the year, uh, you'll know that our study has primarily uh, fallen to the examination of the lives of two men. The lives of Jacob, who was the son of Isaac and the grandson of Abraham. And also, we have studied the life of Joseph, who was Jacob's 11th born and his favorite son. Well, as we approach the conclusion of our study in Genesis, in the final two passages that we are going to look at, one today and Lord willing, uh, one next Sunday morning, we will read about the deaths and the burials of both of those men. And today, we're going to pick up near the end of chapter 49, chapter 49. Uh, having already read about how Jacob, who at 147 years old, lay on his deathbed and gathered to himself all 12 of his sons so that he could pronounce his final blessings on their lives. And as we noted from our study of that passage last week, these blessings were actually prophecies concerning not only them as individuals, but, but those who those prophecies cascaded down and and had an effect on the generations that would come after them. And in effect, these blessings that Jacob gave to his sons pointed them back to the promises that that God had given to him and had given to his father and to his grandfather, that that from him a mighty and great nation would come forth that was so numerous that that you couldn't even count them because even as the stars in the sky are too numerous to count. And not only that, but that, that nation would be given an everlasting inheritance of the, of the land of, of Canaan as their, as their promise, a promised inheritance. And then also that through his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. But as we're going to see, that, that those promises were not only integral to, to the, pro, the prophecies and the blessings that Jacob passed upon his sons, they're also in, integral to the command, the final command that Jacob gives to his sons as he is there on his deathbed. And it is that command, along with all of the details of Jacob's death and his burial, that I want us to focus our attention on this morning. So I want to begin picking up there in chapter 49, verse 29, and we'll read on into chapter 50. Follow along with me there in your word. Verse 29, Then he charged them, that is Jacob, and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with the fathers, with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite as a possession for a burial place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is there were purchased from the sons of Heth. And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for him, for such are the days required for those who are embalmed. And the Egyptians mourned for him seventy days. Now, when the days of his mourning were passed, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the hearing of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am dying in my gra- and in my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now, therefore, please, let me go up and bury my father, and I will come back. And Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as the house of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's house. Only their little ones, their flocks, and their herds they left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him on bo- with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was very great gathering. Then they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, and they mourned there with a great and very solemn lamentation. And he observed seven days of mourning for his father. And when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a deep mourning of the Egyptians. Therefore, its name was called Abel Mitzrayim, which is beyond the Jordan. So his sons did for him just as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite as property for a burial place. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers, and all who went up with him to bury his father. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us and your mercy, and we're thankful for this day that you've blessed us with. And we're grateful for this opportunity that we have together as the people of God around the Word of God, to be able to hear it read and to spend time investigating it, thinking on it, and chewing on it, and pondering it. And what we pray is that we would be found people who are able to hear and our eyes are able to see and our ears are able to hear and our hearts are able to understand that which you would have us to see and to hear and to understand this morning. Help us to push out all of the distractions of what may have happened in our previous week or what's coming up this coming week. Help us for these few moments to be able to still our hearts so that we might be able to hear from you. We pray this for your glory and for our good in Christ's name. Amen. My parents are sitting here this morning and so they will tell you if you want to confirm with them. I am by nature an inquisitive person. I like to ask questions. Um, And in particular, when I am reading historical narrative like what i've just read for you this morning and like predominantly the entire book of genesis is when i read it i like to ask questions of the text and and i ask questions pretty much every time i sit down to read a passage these are the questions that i i tend to 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 go toward questions like what did the what did the author intend for me to understand about this event um why did the author write this, but not write about that, which might seem to be more important? Why did the author speed up the pace of a particular text, or why did he slow it down to almost a snail's crawl? Those are the kind of questions that run through my mind as I'm reading a passage of Scripture. Now, that may seem a little foreign and... And, and, and a little crazy, and, and that's okay, as I am a little crazy. Uh, but I would encourage you that if you don't read your Scriptures that way, that you try it. I believe reading the text, sitting down with the Scriptures, and when you read them to ask the questions of, of who and what and when and where and why, those questions are incredibly important, because when you ask those questions, a lot of times you stumble across some truths that you might not have ever really thought or pondered if you had not inquired of the text. In accordance with that, what I've done today is I've provided you with a little different outline than I normally provide you. Normally I give you a statement or or, or something that, that has a couple of blanks in it. Sometimes it's just a word or two, but those are blanks for you to fill in. Well, I didn't do that this week. I just simply this week decided to give you an outline that was made up of the questions that I asked of this text when I went through it and studied it for myself. And what I hope you'll do is you'll take the time with the blank space that's there, maybe fill in some of those answers. Or maybe it, it might even spur you to have some other questions that I didn't come up with that you'll go back and seek for yourself. Either way, that's, that's going to be the way that we handle this passage this morning. And what I want you to note is the very first question that I came across when I was studying this passage was simply this. The first question is, what did Jacob believe? Based upon what he said, based upon the things that he does here, what did Jacob believe. I think that's an important place to begin. Verse 29, we see that Jacob announces to his sons, I am to be gathered to my people. Now, that phrase often is is, is assumed to mean that he was going to be buried with his people. I mean, after all, uh, in his follow-up instructions to his sons, Jacob directs them to go and bury his body in the same grave in which his father and his grandfather were buried. And so many think that when when he talks about being gathered to his people, that's just what it means. It means that his body was going to be gathered to the other bodies of those in in the grave there in Machpelah. But I want you to notice that Jacob's reference for his being gathered to his people was not a reference to his burial. Rather, it was a reference to his death. In other words, his being gathered to his people was going to happen whether or not his body was ever taken back to the land of Canaan. In in fact, that's exactly what we're told by Moses, the narrator, down in verse 33. In verse 33, Moses tells us that when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed and he breathed his last and was gathered to his people. In other words, Moses clearly tells us that Jacob was gathered to his people long before he was ever taken and buried back in the land of Canaan. So if by using the phrase, I am to be gathered to my people, Jacob intended to communicate that he was about to die, then then what was his conviction? What did Jacob truly believe? Well, clearly Jacob realized that his life, the physical world in which his body had lived and in which our body lives and exists, Well, he evidently understood that that's not all that there is. Jacob believed that there was a life to come. He believed that that there was a life in which his spirit would join the spirits of his fathers in the next world. And the question really gets down to what would be the connecting factor that would unite him to his people in the next world? And I would suggest to you that that uniting characteristic is the characteristic of faith. In fact, that's what the writer of Hebrews tells us. In the book of Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 9, we read these words that by faith Abraham dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations whose builder and maker is God. And then the writer of Hebrews goes on to say that all the patriarchs were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. And they were the ones who sought a homeland. They sought a heavenly country. So, so what did Jacob believe? Well, he obviously believed that when he breathed his last, he would be gathered to his forefathers and to all who had died before him, who had placed their faith in God and had trusted in him to fulfill his promises. And to that end, let me simply say to all of you and to myself, One day, every single one of us will die. And when that day comes, as one has put it, your soul will be swept into the bosom of eternity. The question is, when that day comes, how will you die? You see, according to the scriptures, there are only two destinies to be gathered to the people of God who have turned to God through faith in Christ while in this life, that's, that's one destiny, or the other destiny is to be gathered into hell, the place of torment, a place reserved for those who refuse God's offer of grace and mercy through His Son. What I want you to know is that Jacob's words here with regard to the fact that there is a life that exists apart from this one, a future life, a life of eternity, what that confronts us is is that what we do in this life with Christ will determine where we spend our eternity. And on the authority of God's word, I plead with you to turn to Christ, to turn to the one who has come to give his life as a ransom for you, and that you place your faith in Him. That's question number one that drives me from this text. What did Jacob believe? But I want you to notice the next question that struck me from this passage. The next question is this. What did Jacob's final command communicate? What did his final command to his sons communicate? Notice the specificity with which Jacob tells his sons exactly where he wanted to be buried. He didn't just tell them to go go back and bury me in Canaan. Anywhere up there is fine. No, that's not what he did. He wanted them to bury him, listen, in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite as a possession for a burial place. Four different descriptors are given to these sons to tell them exactly where he wants to bury it. It's like as he's going, look guys, don't mess this thing up. Make sure you guys go to the right spot. Here's the exact location that I want my body to be taken to be buried. Now, if that, if those four descriptors were not enough, listen to how he continues. He says, There they laid, they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. There I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is there were purchased from the sons of Heth. Eight different ways that Jacob makes sure that his 12 sons, these 12 wild sons predominantly who had done a lot of their own things, he said, I want to make sure you guys are all listening. You can't mess this up if you'll go where I tell you to go. Now my question is, what would his sons have understood about all of that? Maybe I could approach it from a different angle to ask the question that I think we need to get to. The question maybe could be phrased this way, Why was it so important to Jacob that he be buried in that specific cave, in that specific location? Well, I believe that that cave in the field of Machpelah represented the toehold, if you will, of the patriarchs in the land of Canaan. You see, just as we read from the book of Hebrews, all of Abraham's life, all of Isaac's life, All of Jacob's life were spent as nomads. They were spent as pilgrims. They were spent as strangers living in a country that was not their own. They didn't own it. They didn't have that in in their uh, ability to say this is part of, uh, of, of my inheritance. Nothing was theirs personally except for this one cave. It represented the one spot that God had allowed for Abraham to buy. And he had a legal claim on it because he had purchased it outright. And the burial of the patriarchs in that cave was proof of their faith that God would ultimately fulfill His promises to them, not just in giving them that cave, not just in giving them the field in which the cave was located, but in giving them the entire country of the land of Canaan. As one Old Testament scholar has written, the precision with which Jacob tells his sons where he wants to be buried communicated to them that he wanted to be a part of God's future fulfillment of his promise. It is as though the dying Jacob wishes to go ahead and to be on hand in the land when it is fully given to his offspring. He wishes to share in the destiny of God's people. Now, there is one other detail that Moses includes here that Jacob said that I found to be quite intriguing to me. And that is that Jacob commanded his sons to bury him in the same cave where he had buried Leah. He tells him to bury in the cave where he buried Leah, and interestingly enough to me, not, not in the place where he had buried Rachel. Now you remember, Rachel was, his, was the love of his life. Rachel was the one that when he had first saw her, his, he fell madly in love with her. Rachel was the one that he willingly worked 14 years for Laban so that Laban would finally give give him her hand in marriage. And so, so this was the one. This was the love of his life. This was the one that he had adored all of his life. And if you'll remember from back in chapter 48, Jacob recounted to Joseph how years earlier he had buried Rachel near Bethlehem. And honestly, I wondered when I read that, why didn't, why, didn't, why didn't Jacob bury Rachel in that same cave in the field of Machpelah? Why, why did he bury her in Bethlehem and not there? And, and, and scholars have, have written about that and they say, well, she died unexpectedly and early. And because of the arid environment of, of the area, those bodies would have decayed very quickly and it probably just did not afford... Jacob, the opportunity to take her body to be buried there. And the truth is, we're not given any specifics with, with, with why. But regardless, what we do know is that she was not buried in that cave, but Jacob's instructions were, bury me in that cave where I buried Leah. Now, as I said, I am by nature an inquisitive person, and so I have pondered that detail, and I've wondered why Jacob mentions that Leah was buried there. And while the text does not give us any definitive answer, I just want to be honest and say that up front, I cannot help but wonder that in light of Jacob's blessing upon Judah earlier in the chapter, and in light of the fact that it would be from the tribe of Judah that would come the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Well, it seems utterly fitting to me that Judah's mother, Leah, would also find herself buried in that same cave in Machpelah, the cave that represented the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to his people. Whatever the case may be, I believe that Jacob's command to his sons clearly communicated to them that they were not to see Egypt as their home. Egypt was not, that was not where their destination was supposed to end. His command to be buried in a very specific spot in Canaan would have told them that there was a place of promise that God had guaranteed to give to them and to their offspring. And this cave, this burial spot, was the down payment on the fulfillment of that promise. And then having told us that, Moses then goes on and says, Jacob gathered his feet up into his bed, and he breathed his last, and he was gathered to his people. Now, wouldn't you love to just write your own story that way? I mean, if we, if we know, just as we said earlier, every single one of us is going to face that, that moment in our life at some point. We are all going to face death. Wouldn't you love to be able to write your story just as Jacob was? To say the final things you want to say, gather your feet up into your bed and breathe your last. It's interesting, Eugene Root, Old Testament scholar, has written this. He said, Jacob, who fought his way into life, struggling with his brother Esau, departs life just as dramatically. Bruce Walkie has written that in this final scene, we see Jacob in his finest hour. On his deathbed, Jacob has finally assumed total and dynamic leadership of his family. And that dynamic leadership is then demonstrated in the obedience of his sons. But before we read about that obedience, we are presented with a, a very tender moment of grief. In the very first verse of chapter 50, we read that that Joseph in his sorrow over the death of his father fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And it's obvious to us that Jacob and, and Joseph had enjoyed a wonderfully close and loving relationship for the 17 years that Jacob had lived in Egypt before he passed. But you'll recall that Jacob had been promised by God back in chapter 46, verse 4, When he asked God, should he really go down to Egypt to avoid the plague or to avoid the famine? And God had said, You go down there, I will go with you. But then he promised him, I will also surely bring you up again, and Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. In other words, Joseph will be the one to close your eyes when death finally overtakes you. Well, here in chapter 50, verse 1, we see that's exactly what happened. When he breathed his last, Joseph fell upon him and obviously would have been able to do exactly what God had said. But Joseph was also able to be the one who would lead his father's remains back to the promised land. And this is the process that we see that that Moses tells us about. Immediately after he had breathed his last, Joseph instructs his own servants, his own physicians to come and to embalm his father's body. Now, History tells us that the Egyptians were consumed by the thought of death and they were very adept at the art of embalming. But the act of embalming for the Egyptians was normally performed by by, by the pagan priests as part of their religious rituals. But what I want you to notice, however, is that Joseph does not enlist the help of priests. Rather, he's not interested in their cultic practices. He, He instructs the physicians to embalm his father's body for a much more practical reason. It's to stave off its decomposition until he could take his father back to Canaan. And the process of that embalming took 40 days. And then we read that all of Egypt mourned for Jacob for 70 days. Now, that respect that was shown to mourn his death for 70 days, who do you think that that respect really was for? It's for Joseph. Because Joseph had been like the vice regent. He had been the one who had overseen everything going on in Egypt and because he had done such a wonderful job and had protected them, all the people of Egypt showed their respect to Joseph by honoring him by mourning for his father. And they did it for 70 days. What's interesting about that note is that the Egyptians mourned the death of one of their own kings, a pharaoh, for 72 days. So by mourning for Jacob for 70 days, they were treating him nigh on to being a king, even though he was a Hebrew. Following the days of mourning, Joseph then respectfully and and discreetly asked Pharaoh for the permission to take his father's body back to Canaan to bury it. What I want to point out to you there is that you notice that Jacob didn't tell Pharaoh everything. Jacob didn't tell Pharaoh, look, my dad just really does not want to be buried in this country. My dad really despises Egypt to the degree that he does not want to allow his body. That's not the way Jacob approached it. What he did was he says, my dad has a place and he's asked me to go bury him there. If I have found favor in your sight, would you allow me to do that? And Pharaoh said, not only will I allow you to do that, he provided him a military escort and provided him all the dignitaries to make this grand caravan that would ultimately take Jacob's body all the way back to Canaan. Now here's the thing, here's here's where my mind starts working crazy again. Because when I start reading this, I get to the question number three that I have for you on your outline. And it's, why did Moses include so many details? These verses tell us all about the, the, the mourning. It tells us all about the embalming and the number of days. and the, It even goes on to tell us about the, the funeral arrangements and even, even about the funeral procession. And there is more detail given to us about Jacob's death and His embalming, and His burial than anyone else in the entire Old Testament. In fact, there is more about Him than there is anyone else in the entire Bible save the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 25, only three verses are given to Abraham's death. In chapter 35, only one verse is given to Isaac's death. If you'll look at the last verse of chapter 50 in Genesis, you'll see that there's only one verse given to Joseph's death. So Joseph died being 110 years old and they embalmed him and they put him in a coffin in Egypt. That's it. So why? Why all of this detail with regard to Jacob and to his death? Well, we should remind ourselves that Moses is writing this narrative to be read by those Israelites who had escaped Egyptian slavery some 400 plus years after Jacob's death. And based upon many of the details that Moses has told us here with regard to Jacob's death and to the funeral procession that he was involved with and all of them that went along that, I would suggest to you that Moses is intentionally drawing his readers' attention to some similarities as well as to some differences between their exodus from Egypt and the exodus of Jacob's body back to Canaan. For example... Notice the details concerning this entourage that went with, with Jacob back to Canaan. According to verses 79, we read that all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of the house, all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as the house of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's house, all of them made the trip. It says that only their little ones, their flocks, and their herds, they left behind in the land. And then you read that what went up with him was both the chariots and the horsemen, and a very great gathering accompanied. Jacob's body. Now Gordon Wyndham, he notes that many of the words and the descriptives used here are used again to describe the exodus from Egypt. In fact, we read that Pharaoh and all of his servants chased after the Israelites when they left and, and when they exited out of the land under Moses' leadership. In fact, according to Exodus 14 verse 9, it says the Egyptians pursued them, all the horses, and chariots of Pharaoh and his horsemen and his army. In other words, 400 years earlier, Pharaoh's servants and his army and his chariots, they all escorted the body of the Israelites' forefather back to Canaan. But during the exodus from Egypt, those same ones chased the Israelites. Not only that, but consider that all the Israelites, all their flocks, And all their little ones and all their herds, all of them were left behind in Egypt when they went on the funeral procession. But specifically, Exodus tells us that all, everything the Israelites owned, all of their flocks, all of their herds, all of their little ones went with them when they made the Exodus. And what that tells us is is that those who went on Jacob's funeral procession obviously had every intention of coming back to Egypt. But when the Israelites left Egypt, they had no intention of ever coming back. But there's still another detail that I want to point out to you. In verse 10, we're told that all of those in that funeral procession came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan. Now, I don't have a map to be able to show you, but I want you to know that why that detail is so important is that it tells us that Jacob's funeral procession for some unknown reason, took the long circuitous way around the bottom of the Dead Sea and then it went back up on the eastern side of the Jordan River, which, incidentally, is the same route that the Israelites would take 400 years later under Moses' leadership. They did not take the direct route from Egypt straight up around the Mediterranean Sea and straight up into Israel. They did not take that direct route. The same route if they had retraced the steps from when they had come from Canaan into Egypt 17 years earlier. And though we have no idea why this roundabout route was taken, the point is simply this. Those reading Moses' words 400 years later would have identified with this passage. It would have resonated with them because when they read about Jacob's funeral procession, they would have realized that they weren't the first one to travel the same path from Egypt to Canaan. Now, let me just ask you a question this morning. How many times have you faced something in your life that you did not know how it was going to turn out? You've had some difficulty. You've had something in front of you that you weren't sure how you were going to make it from this spot to that spot. And suddenly someone came along and said, put their arm around you and came up beside you and said, I just want you to know I'm praying for you because I've been where you are. And I have walked those steps before you. And I don't know about you, but the times when that's happened with me, the wave of comfort that has come over my heart and my life at that time to know that there was someone who had walked that same path before I walked it. And they could look back and testify to me that God was faithful to them and brother, he'll be faithful to you. I believe That is very likely one of the very reasons why all of these details are there. All of these comparisons and all these contrasts that Moses embeds in this passage, he slows the pace of this narrative down so that he can speak to these Israelites who had been delivered from their Egyptian slavery and remind them that the same God who had kept His promises to their forefather Jacob would also keep His promises to them. So those are the three questions that grabbed me as I went through this text today. Those are the ones. What did Jacob believe? What did Jacob's command about where he was to be buried communicate to his sons? And why did Moses provide us so many details? And I've done the best that I know how to do to try to answer those questions. But it, it also then leads me to the fourth question because we have to take a step back, right? We can't stay just located in the sun standing around the bed, and we can't just locate ourselves in those ancient Israelites. We've got to locate ourselves in the 21st century. So the final question really that begs to be asked from this text is this, what does all this mean for us? In light of what Jacob believed, in light of what his sons came to understand, and in light of what those ancient Israelites who read this story realized, what should you and I take away from this text? How does this story of Jacob's death and burial impact Me and you. Well, what we cannot ignore, what we cannot ignore is the overarching theme of God's faithfulness to his promises. When you distill everything down to to its lowest point, you come away with that. God is always faithful to his promises. We've continued to see that again and again and again throughout our, story, our study of the book of Genesis. In other words, the one sustaining common thread that weaves its way through the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph is their confident hope that God will be faithful to His promises. That didn't mean that there were never moments of doubt in their lives. We've seen those moments. It didn't mean, it, it, as we look at there, that they always lived a perfect life of faith. Certainly they did not. And when we examine our own lives, we realize that there are moments when we always do not take God at His word and when we do not always live a perfect life of faith. But when we come to these closing moments of Jacob's life, we realize that despite all of his faltering, despite all of his failing, he had come to grasp onto that one hope that God is always faithful to His promises. That's why I think this passage is just such an important one. I think it's so important, not only for, for the sons, but for those Israelites who had exited out of Egypt 400 years after Jacob's death. You see, after they had traced his steps in the wilderness and they had gotten to the threshold of going into the land of promise, we read at the end of the Pentateuch that Moses died. He, too, was gathered to his people. And now those Israelites stood there. There was the river in front of them. And beyond the river was the land of promise. And suddenly they had a new leader whose name was Joshua. And when Joshua spoke to them, he spoke to them on behalf of God. And God's word to them were this, Be strong and courageous. Why? Because it is such a thing to be fearful and to to shrink back from the promises of God. What would it be that would propel them across that river into the land of the unknown that they weren't sure exactly how it was going to go about? It was this. The same God who had been faithful to Abraham had been faithful to Isaac and had been faithful to Jacob. And he was there waiting on them and said, Come on, be strong and courageous and go into that land which I have given to you. Brothers and sisters, that is where all of this really comes back home to roost with us. We too often find ourselves in difficult and uncertain times. Perhaps these times have been brought on by conflict or by sickness or by our job or by financial stress. Perhaps it is because there is something new on our horizon that we are afraid to move toward because we simply do not know how things will turn out. Here is where the gospel makes all the difference in the world. You see, our hope to persevere in the face of hard and uncertain circumstances comes not because we understand everything, and it comes not because everything always works out the way we want it to. Rather, our hope lies in the fact that as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, God has promised that He will never forsake us, He will never leave us, He will not abandon us, and He will not leave us fatherless. And since that is true, then those whose faith is in Christ can not only face hardship and uncertainty, brothers and sisters, we can also face death knowing that our Lord has gone before us to prepare a place for us so that when He comes back for us, He will receive us to Himself. And that's what leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. Because God is faithful to His promises, we can persevere through difficult and uncertain seasons of our lives and face death confident that our eternal destiny is secure. Are you living with that perseverance? Do you have that confidence? More specifically, is your faith firmly grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Like like Jacob, are you confident that you will be gathered to the people of God who have turned to God through faith in His Son. I want you to know that Jesus is your only hope. There is no other hope. And my prayer is that you will turn to Him and trust Him as your Savior and Lord. And if that is where your hope and your confidence is placed, then are you persevering? According to the Scriptures, you and I can face whatever circumstance this life may throw at us with confident assurance because we know that if God is for us, then we have no need to fear those who may be against us. And furthermore, when death comes, we know that we can face it with confidence because our eternal destiny is secure. And we can be confident that we will be ushered into the presence of our Savior whose arms will be wide open to receive us to Himself. Brothers and sisters, God is always faithful to His promises. This is the Word of God, and it is for the people. Let's pray together this morning. Father, thank you for this reminder from your holy word about the thing that we need to be most confident of, and that is that you are a God who keeps his promises. And because you're a God that keeps his promises, that necessarily means that when you tell us You have sent your only Son to be the only way, the only truth, and the only life. We need to recognize that that is the only way for salvation to happen. It does not rest in our good works. It does not rest in us being a little better than somebody else. It doesn't cause us to look horizontally at those sitting next to us. It causes us to look straight into the face of the only hope that we have, Jesus Christ. And because you're faithful... To your word and to your promises, you have told us that the only hope that we have is through him, through humbling ourselves before him and confessing him as Savior and Lord. So my prayer this morning is that your Holy Spirit might penetrate the heart of anyone here today who has truly never come to you by faith. Because God, you are their only hope. Jesus is their only hope. I pray that you would make that abundantly clear to them. And for those of us who have grasped on to you as our only hope and our only measure of salvation, then I pray that you would penetrate our hearts with the the resounding truth of the fact that because you keep your promises, then we can face whatever comes our way because we know that you will walk with us. You will carry us through those moments. You are faithful. So I pray today that you would encourage our hearts that as we leave this place and face all of those things in our lives that we don't understand and don't know how it's going to work out, that we would not be overcome and overwhelmed by those pressures, but rather that we would be overwhelmed by your great love and your faithfulness to us. This is my prayer, and I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.